I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and this is the Downtown Riders Jam video podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. We're coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker today. Fall is here. I'm in my sweater. It's wonderful weather. Very sad Max isn't here. This was his favorite time of year. It is also my favorite time of year. So a little bit about the show today. Sometimes I do shit on the show because I want to. I try very hard to um, make this show diverse and interesting and bring people from all over the place and all walks of life and all publishing backgrounds and all the stuff. Like It's really important to me that the show looked like the world. I mean, every once in a while, somebody comes across my desk and I'm like, oh yeah, shit, I'm, I'm bringing this person on because I would like to talk to him. And today is one of those days. Uh, Robbie Bach is here uh, and his book, The Wilkes Insurrection is out now. It's his first novel. And you know, I love talking to people when they've written their first novels. It's always fun at that point. Here's why I wanted him on the show. And I've done this before. Paul Vidic was on the show a little while ago. Uh, and Paul was, I think, at Warner Music when I was at Wired. And I had I wrote one thing about him. He was one of the only people in that level of C-suite stuff that, that rarely talked to the press. All the other people always wanted to talk. Um, and the only time I wrote about him was that it was a press release with his stuff in it, right? It's one of those bullshit things you drop in. Robbie led the team that created Xbox. Now. If you know me, uh, I don't really play games. I never really play. I play Dungeons and Dragons, obviously. Obviously. Played in television growing up. 
For those of you that don't know what that is, look that shit up. It was the cool version of Atari. But like, I never really got into computer games and stuff like that. But my writing partner, John, and I wrote a whole book about Dungeons and Dragons and computer games. And when I was at Wired, part of the reason that came about was because Microsoft was getting ready to launch this thing called the Xbox. And it was Microsoft's attempt to get into the living room, right? So Apple was going about it through consumer devices and Microsoft decided to go about it through this Xbox. And eventually it would do things like stream, you know, Hulu and movies and all that kind of stuff. And had a DVD player and you could play music through it, all of that stuff. It was, if I'm remembering correctly, it was not allowed. Uh, there were restrictions on it being sold around the world because you could daisy chain them together and turn them into a, into a supercomputer, right? And so the Xbox was like this revolutionary gaming system, but it was really the Trojan horse. And I wrote a lot about this as Microsoft's attempt to sort of get past what they fucked up with, uh, with the um, whatever, the iPod, you know, with the music stuff that they were building that everybody was digging. And so Robbie ran that team. Well, I mean, shit, that's 22 years ago, right? Like that's, that's right when I was at Wired covering this stuff. And so I'm always fascinated when people from that world end up in this other world, right? Like when Janelle Brown goes from, you know, being a technology journalist to being a famous fiction writer, like that shit. So that's, that's interests me. I mean, outside of being my friend, like that's some cool shit. Robbie doing the Xbox thing and then being like, Hey man, I think I want to write books. What is interesting, and I'm not going to go through his whole, like I wrote his whole resume bio down here. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but he, um, he served on the board for the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Uh, he's done a stuff, I believe, with the Boys and Girls Club. Um, uh, Brooks Running, he was on the board for Brooks Running, the Space Needle. Like he's just done a whole bunch of stuff, right? Like, and he's really into civic engagement and things of that nature. Yeah, he serves on the National Board of Governors for the Boys and Girls Club of America. So, like, he's actively involved in civic and social things after he left Microsoft to do this. Here's the other reason outside of just my own personal, like, ah, shit, blast from the past. Like we're going to do this thing again. Right. So if you've heard these interviews, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about this stuff. What's really interesting to me is that if you've heard the show, you, whenever I have screenwriters on or people that come from a screenwriting background, there is that they, they tend to be very good novel writers because they have a structure, because they think in visual language, they understand what a scene, uh, a scene is, and they have this like, oh, this needs to happen here. This like that's the nature of screenwriting. Whereas novel writing is like, I, you know, until you know, like the, there's a format, but it's sort of different all the time. But if you're doing a thriller and you're or a procedural, you know, there's a way, and so you're used to thinking that way. Well, Robbie was around people that were making games on computers. And this is where like my book comes in, right? Like the narrative became this huge part of games. Richard Garriott started doing it with the Ultima series. And it sort of, it went into, there was this branch between computer games where they had these sandbox games. Uh, and then these other games that would be narratively driven in a lot, like as people were putting these games together, you would, they would, some of them would have writers, some of them would, you know, they bring screenwriters in, they would bring all these different kinds of people in, in the early days of this stuff, trying to figure out what's the, 
how much gameplay exists and how much story exists. And so these forms developed around that. And even if you don't, even if you're uh, a Ludologist, somebody that believes that story and game doesn't matter, there are still scenes and you, those scenes are crafted and there's a set amount of time and things must happen in them in a certain place. So I was really fascinated with Robbie who did the Xbox and he was not a, you know, he wasn't a creative. He came from marketing. So he had that storytelling thing to it, but then he was, he gravitated to and was around all these people that were thinking about story and game. And so it's not that weird of a leap for me that he becomes a writer. Maybe this is only a thing that I see. I mean, I'm not like, it's not like, oh, nobody else would understand. It's not a big fucking leap, but this is like literally what I wrote about. And we got our book deal in large part because of the writing we did about this stuff. Uh, you know, me over at uh, Wired, I was originally approached and then I brought John onto the project because he's a way better writer than I am. Uh, and then we sort of branched out and got into this idea of like storytelling games, computers, and the internet, and sort of how they all impact each other. So for me, Robbie does not know this, although if he listens to this, he'll hear now, like a big part of my writing career, like moving from magazine into book writing into where I am now, stems from the writing and work that I did around like the innovative storytelling stuff that was happening in games. So I'm super excited, right? Like this is totally like a moment where I get to interview somebody that I really want to interview because of the profound impact that they had on my life instead of just like loving writers and like wanting their stuff to do well. Um, so yeah, so today's a little bit selfish for me. Um, but I also hope that you like it because you'll hear he's fucking great, man. Like you got two super extroverts coming at you. So if you are introverted at all, like take a deep breath, maybe drink some sleepy time tea because we will keep you up before we get to that interview couple uh, bits of business. I need you to do a couple things to help us out. So the jam, our 60 minute show comes out every Wednesday. These video podcasts come out every Monday and Friday. Two things you can do. First, tell your friends about us. Always people that are interested in stories and reading and stuff like that. Tell them about us. That's all you got to do. This shit's free. It doesn't cost you nothing. Help us out. The second thing you can do is leave us a review. If you are on Apple Podcasts, Leave us a written review. Leave us a starred review. That's super helpful. If you're not, head over to the Writer's Jam Facebook page and leave us a review there. You can also head on over to writersjam.com and there you get the video podcast series. You get book reviews. If you want to buy books, you can click on the bookshop link and support local and independent bookstores across the country and sign up for our newsletter. And you can support everybody on the Solid Listen Podcast Network for just a couple bucks a month. Molly and Nicole are growing this thing. I think we got 12 or 13, 14 shows like all around pop culture. Um, got a couple more in line with what I do. Uh, a little bit um, less about pop culture. There's a, a an MLM podcast, which is really fascinating. So for just a couple bucks a month, commercial free episodes, behind the scenes stuff, all kind of stuff to support everything Molly's trying to build here. Uh, and it would be great. So I appreciate you stopping by the bunker to spend a little time with us today and to indulge me as I get to talk to somebody who influenced my career. Uh, I hope your day is going well. Hope you're treating each other well. Hope you're taking care of yourself. Take those mental breaks when you need to. Remember, vacation time is money. So take your vacation because you've earned it. Now, I hope you will sit back 
Enjoy my conversation, Robbie Bach. It's the 20th anniversary of Xbox this year too. Yeah. And what I, I people always say, so what was it like? I was like, well, think of it this way. Broadband didn't exist yet. Right. Buffering was the way the world was. Yeah. Look, we were debating whether the Xbox should have a 56K modem in it. <laughs> I mean, just think about that. Thank God that was too expensive. So we took it out. But um, <laughs> just imagine. Yeah. It's, you know, having covered all of that stuff at Wired, like I rolled in right. I was one of the first people to write about the MP3 stuff and all the lawsuits and every, all the ways and that spilled out. And right. outside of the law, a lot of what I wrote about was this sort of intersection of society, technology, and business. And a lot of that played out through the entertainment space. The way right. in which we use these things today was really defined by, we weren't kids, but we were young. Yeah. And this stuff was really just like, you look back in history and you can tell a story, but at the time it was like, fuck, I don't know. I don't know. Right. <laughs> no, totally right. Totally right. Totally right. So, um, so for this morning, what would you like to do? So this is what we're doing. This is the show. Like we just right. kind of talk about this stuff. So Perfect. one of the, th when I interviewed Paul, because he was the vice president of new media at Warner music. And so when right. you came across my desk, it was another one of these, like, Oh, this is, we're back in the day. <laughs> like I'm always interested in the transformation because of how you go from executive this to novelist this, because those two things are very disparate from each other. Sure. So were well, you always was writing something that you always wanted to do? Well, I've always loved to write. So I, like I entered, I entered my first writing contest in high school. If that tells you how far back this goes, <laughs> but of course, you know, you get in the business world and what you're writing is memos. So I wrote some, I wrote some world-class memos. Um, when I left Microsoft, I didn't leave to write. I left to go do civic work. Yeah. And so I got involved in a bunch of uh, nonprofit organizations. Um, the big one being boys and girls clubs and mm -hmm. love that work. And in the process of that, I said, Hey, we did a bunch of strategies, things on Xbox. I need to write about that. And so I wrote about an 11 page thing about that. And I said, well, 11 pages is the perfectly long length. It either needs to be three pages or it needs to be 200 pages. And <laughs> you opted I chose for the, 200 pages. <laughs> and I chose the 200 page option. And so I wrote a book, Xbox Revisited, um, which I published in 2015. And, you know, that's, I use that in my consulting work. I use it in my sure. public speaking work. It's great. And it's a, it's a nice book. It's sort of part memoir of Xbox, but mostly focused on strategy. And when I got done with that, I just said, wow, I really love to write. And I said, well, I could do another nonfiction book. And then I said, but boy, that would be really boring. It's just not, it's not interesting. Yeah. And so I, you know, I, I want to challenge myself to learn new things. So I said, okay, let's write fiction. And I started writing fiction by writing, you know, probably a hundred pages <laughs> on four or five characters that have been kind of running around in my head. No plot, no storyline, uh, not even really an idea that this was going to be a thriller. Just let me write about the characters. And then I started to see ways, and they're contemporary characters, so they're taking place in today's time. I started seeing how they could come together, and I love thrillers. So I started thinking about that from a plot perspective, and pretty soon I had the idea for a book. 
So I, I, there's two things that I want to talk about. Like, how do you end up at Xbox? And this is going to connect to where you are now. Like, was that sure. because a lot of like I ended up, I didn't want to be a technology journalist. I'd been a feature writer, but that was sort of the most interesting thing that was happening at the time. And so right. I gravitated to that. Well, I so I worked in office for five and a half years, ran marketing for office, decided I'd launched three versions of office. That was enough. It was time to go do something else. So I went to work in this little backwater inside Microsoft called the consumer division. And I, I went to work for uh, the guy who is my best friend and business partner today, a guy named Pete Higgins, who you may remember. Uh-huh. And uh, we had a bunch of sort of disparate consumer stuff that came to work for me. Part of which was the gaming business, which at that time was Flight Simulator yeah. and Age of Empires. <laughs> it was this tiny little PC gaming business. Yeah. And then this idea of Xbox came along. And so people looked to me and the, and the people on my team, Ed Freeze, who runs the gaming business. Oh, yeah. Thompson. I knew Ed. Yeah. And Rick Thompson, who ran our hardware business and did mice and keyboards and Activates and things like that. And so suddenly this ended up being Rick's job. And literally a, a month into the project, Rick decided to leave Microsoft. So it became my job. And that's how I became chief Xbox officer. And is your background, you said you were running marketing. Like, is that your background? Like, is that? Yeah, my background is marketing and business. I'm an MBA from Stanford. I'm a business business person, yeah. which, which turns out to be valuable in the Xbox case because it's actually a really complicated and interesting business model. Right. Um, yeah. And it was super helpful that I had a, a pretty long history at Microsoft because managing the relationship between team Xbox and team Microsoft was a whole, a whole nother gear. Um, I got to write a my, lot about that. <laughs> yeah. And those are, those were my, those were my two sort of core areas is running the business, helping the, the marketing and brand work get going and managing the relationship between Microsoft and the business. But so, I don't have a technology but, background at all. But, and I mean, the marketing, at least marketing has a story component to it, right? Like at least like Absolutely. that, is, well, so like there is that creative element of your background. Yeah. The, Fact. And then the, the other thing that happened during this time is I spent a lot of time with game developers. This is what I wanted to ask about. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) So I spent... You know, you, you, I, I, I visited all of our publishers at least twice a year. You spend time with game development teams. People say, hey, I want to show you something. And what you discover when you're talking to a game developer is the first thing they're thinking about is story. Yeah. And they are telling a digital interactive story. And so, you know, the combination of sort of, you know, three, three pegs on the stool. One peg is I love to write. The second peg is... Um, uh, this storytelling experience with Xbox. And the, the third peg is uh, my desire to, uh, you know, have an impact and explore new areas. Yeah. And so you put those three things together and from that came the desire to, to write a novel. It's the first thing that I thought, I've interviewed a ton of screenwriters who have become right. novelists and all of them. And, and I also wrote a book about game developers and storytelling. And so sure. when I saw that, I'm like, oh, I mean, if you're sitting atop of this thing, they think cinematically, they think in scenes, they think Absolutely. in like, so there is a structure that you have for storytelling that you would have picked up over those 20 years, whether you Absolutely. knew you were doing that or not. Exactly. And, right. and you know, it, when you read the Wilkes Insurrection, um, the, the immediate reaction I get from a lot of people, I mean, there's a bunch of things that are pretty common. That people love Major Tamika Smith. Um, they, they love the story. But one of the things people say is, gosh, this would make a good uh, video, you know, 10-part yeah. series type thing because yeah. it's written that way. Yeah. Right? And it's written in, you know, the chapters, there's 66 chapters, but they're yeah. four pages long. Mm-hmm. And so each chapter is a scene. Yeah. And, and, you know, so that influence has happened and I can't completely explain it. Yeah. Um, but it's absolutely happened. Yeah. It's the screenwriters that I've talked to have said like, there's a constraint, right? There's two hours. You have two hours and at minute seven, <laughs> this needs to happen. And at minute 12, this needs to happen. Right. And so when they transferred into writing, they both had a visual language in their head, but right. also a structure. And it's the shit that people like me, writers, struggle with as they write novels because right. we don't have a structure you have to learn that and so i just like i was fascinated when i saw this i'm like oh this actually makes sense that you write books just what i know sure. based and, on all the game folks well and, and what's what's <laughs> interesting is i had two writing influences that kind of fought against each other so one is this scene driven creative work from xbox right so yeah. you get that and the second is you know I really like to write, and most of my writing's been long essays, thesis, things like that. So the first draft of what became the Wilkes Insurrection was um, 175,000 words. Oh, my God. And 550 pages. (laughs) With a lot of exposition? Well, no, it's all backstory. Oh. (laughs) And so what you discover is that 
the inclusiveness that comes between with being somebody who write who's written the thesis document and the challenge of somebody who wants to write these little scenes yeah in the first version it was all backstory and so i had the first editor i worked with she said okay that chapter is really well written super interesting but you have to write it in one sentence for the for the book <laughs> so you yeah. have you have 16 words write that chapter in 16 words and we're going to put it in right here yeah and and suddenly the the book went from 175,000 words to ultimately 107 yeah in media res becomes really important when you're editing like oh yeah 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 like nobody yeah, yeah. <laughs> nobody cares nobody cares <laughs> yeah. they, they don't care and and yet if you're developing the character you have to know the backstory 100% right? i mean and, so in a way doing it the hard way was actually helpful for me yeah here's i got bad news for you like all of us it's a hard way for everybody like the joke in the show is that nobody knows how to write a novel until the only way to learn is to write it and the right. only thing you learn after you write it is that you can finish it because the next one's going to be a little bit different than that one right <laughs> like, well and I, I get the question for people a lot so how do you write and so I've talked to a bunch of authors. I mean, you obviously have. Yeah. And I talked to a bunch of authors and none of them write the same way. No, it's a shit show. Everybody's <laughs> different. You know, so, so I wrote, I wrote characters first, plot second. Yeah, absolutely. I have other people who I talk to who say, no, I know the end of the story. I've written the plot. I have an outline. Yeah. And then I fill it in. I couldn't write this story that way. Yeah. One of my friends, actually, you may know her, Janelle Brown. She used to write at Salon and she covered some of the during the same time. She's now a famous novelist. Right. We've been friends forever. And like she always says, like, I get a character in my head and then I just start putting them through stuff, you know, like exactly. that's sort of like that's, you know, and then you sort of figure out like this is the story. Like, and, this and, is and, and then you talk to people about the tools they use and some of them use these custom writing tools where they can move scenes around easily and create blocks of text and la la la. Well, I was a word product manager, so I use Microsoft Word. <laughs> I've demoed the product like a thousand times. Yeah. So that's my tool of choice. Yeah, it's one of the reasons I don't, I always tell people like, this is the least literary, literary podcast because we don't talk about that stuff because every writer will tell you like, writing is terrible. And like, yeah. you're the two things I've told folks is you're not a writer until you've edited your draft and that yeah. you read a lot. You have to read a lot because the answers to what you're trying to do are in other people's books, whether right. it's whether it's how they did it or the inspiration or you just see something and go, holy crap, this is the way through, right? right. Like, that's what writing is. Like, the first draft is, I don't want to say easy, but like, it's easy compared to the fifth draft. <laughs> well, and, and, and rereading your own work is just, is just hard. Yeah, I mean... It's why we're self-loathing people. Yeah. <laughs> well, clearly I haven't written enough books yet because I'm not quite there yet, but I, 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 suspect, uh, I suspect I'll get there eventually. Get there. It's, I tell people being a writer is two things. is being narcissistic enough to think you have something to say that people should hear and then self-loathing enough that everything you read, you put the good stuff aside and you just look at the bad stuff, right? So you have this sort of dual thing of like, I have a thing to say, but I'm awful at it. Yeah, it's, it's um, being self-critical is, is hard. And, and, you know, like that cut from 175,000 to 107, about 30,000 of, 30, of those words is an entire branch of the story. So it's like, get out a saw and just, 
Yeah. And it's all gone. Yeah. And, you know, the truth is the thriller is better because of it. Yeah. And that'll be um, a short story or a novella that you put on Audible. Well, yeah. And no, again, it ends up, it ends up being, you know, part of the, of the novel, but it's a few paragraphs. Yeah. And, you know, there's all this detail that's really cool, by the way, but nobody will ever read it. The best chapter in the book that John Bordlin and I published was not in the book. It didn't, it just didn't fit the narrative. And like, so we'd go on shows that talk about it and they're like, what's your favorite part of the book? And I'm like, well, here's the part that's not in the book. That's my favorite part of the book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so so you're, anyway, that's, the, that's sort of the way Wilkes Insurrection came about. Yeah. Um, are you like a big, really fun. are you like, so you're a big thriller reader? Yes. Like whole life, lifetime, like that's your game. Lifetime. Your well, uh, why, I, should, I should say caveat. Thriller and mystery. Sure. Aren't not the same genre, but related. Yeah. So like Dick Francis is a hero. Yeah. Right. Now I don't know anything about horses. I can barely ride a horse. The dude writes mysteries about wrote mysteries about horses and he wrote a bunch of them and they're all awesome. And I've read every one of them. So you also had that, that there, right? Like, because I truly believe you cannot be a writer unless you read a lot, because again, you'll just sort of, I don't want to say naturally, but like over time you do something enough, you understand the structure. Like, oh, here's the turn. Like at halfway through, I better have a big reveal. <laughs> right? Well, you're right. And like in the case of the Wilkes insurrection, I, you know, I'm writing along and, you know, the first thing anybody who reads books, a thriller says, all right, you got to grab me in the first few paragraphs. Okay, I get that. Sure. And it's no secret that in the Wilkes Insurrection, there's a plane crash right at the beginning. So I'm thinking, oh, I'm golden. I've got this exciting sequence that happens right at the beginning. And, you know, so that's not a secret. There's no suspense around that. But the, the crash is exciting in and of itself. But then as I was writing along, I said, you know, that's not enough. There's no intrigue in the suspense. There's action, but there's no intrigue yeah. in, in the crash. So I stepped back and I said, okay, and this is where you borrow from other writers. Yeah. I said, well, I'm going to write a prologue. And the prologue is a scene that's going to take place way towards the end of the book. Yes. I know this structure. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm, <laughs> I'm going to write that. And I don't even know how I'm getting there yet. <laughs> Right. I haven't figured out the plot. There's no outline that gets me there, but I think it's a cool scene. So I'm going to write to get there. And so I wrote the scene in the, the prologue from the perspective of my antagonist, my villain. Mm -hmm. And so you're in his head in the scene, which is this, pro, you know, prologue. That's actually something that takes place way in the future. Yeah. And you go through it then. And then when I get there in the book, I write the scene from the protagonist's point of view. Mm -hmm. And, you know, same scene. Sure. But different. Yeah. And you now connect the front of the book and the back end. And that prologue is, you know, I think it's some of my best writing. And it's really good. And you get to the end of that and you go, oh. <laughs> and, and that's the goal. And then you start with an immediate action scene. And now you've got somebody... Yeah, you have the car chase, right? Like it's you yeah. go to an action movie. There's there better be a car chase and explosions at the beginning. Somebody's chasing well, something. Why does a James Bond movie always start with a scene from his last episode? Yeah, right. You know, I mean, he always has this action scene which has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. 
right? But it's an action scene that sort of grabs you and they say, okay, I'm in a James Bond movie. Okay, yeah. ready to go. Well, and it's interesting that you did that from both perspectives, right? Because I, I mean, another one of the topics we talk about all the time on the show, particularly for nonfiction folks, is that it's really easy for nonfiction folks to to get, particularly if they're if they're new, to think they're telling the story and right. not realizing that a series of events isn't a story. And depending on the lens that you're looking at though of those events through, that story is going to be told differently, right? Well, it's it's fun that you bring that up because one of the other techniques I had to figure out in writing the Wilkes Insurrection is, okay, point of view. Yeah. <laughs> now, I wrote the full first draft without thinking word one about point of view. I just wrote and so my point of view in that first draft bounced around all over the place. Yeah. And so one of the things I had to do in the second draft was, okay, pick a point of view. And I couldn't, I, I decided not to do that. So I am in the head of different characters. Now, when I'm in their head, I'm in their head for the chapter. And so, you know, where you are as a, right. as a reader, but at some point in the book, I'm in every character's head. Yeah. Writing from their perspective. Isn't it weird? Like when you sit down to write, particularly, I mean, I've been doing this for a while, but like sure. point of view and tense are yeah. things that like you don't think about the when you're when you're new into the business and then you do it and the editor reads it and is like, past, present, where are we? Who are we in? Like, <laughs> do they know everything? Like, what's going on? <laughs> it, it's so I was I when I when I wrote that first draft. I was an omniscient person in somebody's head, which of course is a contradiction in terms, right? That sure. doesn't actually work. Right. And so I had to switch to being, okay, I'm in somebody's head. Whose head am I in? All right, I'm in that person's head. What can they know? Right. And how do I write this scene knowing what they can know? Yeah. And that intentionality was hard to learn. And it then, is. And then to switch it with each scene and say, oh, I'm in Tamika Smith's head now. And oh, now I'm in Ford Wilkes' head, who's the villain. And now I have to write from a villain's perspective. Right. And that's fascinating. It was, was wonderful, but it's hard. And, you know, I was at, uh, when I went to Berkeley for, J for graduate school, for journalism, Michael Lewis was my, I was his teaching assistant. You know, sure. he did the new, new thing and blindside and like all that stuff. Right. And one of the things he said that I've never forgotten is every story needs a Darth Vader. And Darth right. Vader never thinks he's Darth Vader. Right. Like nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks they're the bad guy. Right. Like that's that is not how people work. And right. even as a as a nonfiction writer, like I always tried to keep that in my head. But as I've interviewed novelists and fiction writers, we've talked a lot about empathy as fiction is a way for people to get empathy because you embody other people's stories. Doesn't matter what book it is, but as right. a writer as well, like you have to tap into a deep wellspring of your emotional stuff to be like, OK, like. This person does not think they're Darth Vader. Or if they do, there's a reason that they're Darth Vader. And like, how do I then present this in a way that isn't just transparently black hat and white hat? Yeah, the, the hardest part for me was writing from my antagonist's point of view. I mean, I hope so. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Um, in part because that's not the way I am, but in part because you have to make them human. That's what I mean, yeah. And 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 enable people to understand their motivations for why they're the way they are that is uh that's an art form and it's 
it takes a long time to sort of figure it out. Yeah. And it's, but that's what, I mean, particularly with like prestige TV and things like that, like modern storytelling is far more complex, I think, than it was even, you know, 30 years ago. Right. Visual stuff. Like you just expect your bad guys to have something that you can empathize with or understand, not agree. Right. Like I always tell young writers, like our job as nonfiction writers is to explain, not excuse. And it's the same thing with a good villain. Right. right. Like you got to right. be able to go, ah, shit there. But for the grace of God, go I, you know, right. like. Right. And that's super and hard. It, it's super it's it's yeah. super hard. And um, anyway, it, it has been a, you know, this first novel, I, you know, I obviously love the story and I love the book. And I, I, you know, early reviews are really positive. So I'm sure people will will engage with it. But it has been, as you say, a writer's journey. And uh, it's been it's been awesome. Are you going to keep it up? I think so. Um, we'll see. You know, it's hard right now. I'm in the midst of being the chief marketing officer for the book. Yeah. Because um, that's the other problem with being an author is you end up being the chief marketing officer for yes. your work. Everything. Uh, you are and, the chief everything of it all. Well, uh, of course. And and so I think it'll be January, February. I'll take a pause and sort of say, okay, um, is there more for Tamika, major Tamika Smith to say? But I mean, are you going to keep writing, even if you don't follow her along? Oh, I think so. But again, I, if I was going to write another novel, it'll be about her. It'll be this. It'll, it'll be about this. And, and in part because um, I do, you know, in the back of my head, know there's more to say. Yeah. And, and she has more of a story. In part because I think the likelihood of me creating a character who is as strong and human and um, intellectually um, uh, honest as a writing from a writing perspective as Tamika Smith, I think that would be hard. And I, I think I'd end up writing Tamika Smith again with a different name. <laughs> well, listen, I've been doing this for a long time and just listening to what you've said, I feel like you're going to be writing another book. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> and it's, um, it's, it's really fun um as you say that you have to be a little narcissistic about it because it can be painful and it's it's hard um but i have found a you know a second point of joy beyond my my professional life and my family life so i, I it's the third point of joy and and it's writing and it's really fun and there's something we'll just end with this like there's something i think innately human about telling stories like it is what we spend our whole lives doing, right? You go to the doctor, you tell your medical story, like everywhere you go, there is some story. So when you get that world in your head, it's less to me about, I always tell people, even when I was at Wired, I wasn't writing. I was transcribing the story that I saw in my head. Like I was getting that story out, even when it was nonfiction stuff. Like there's just something about that that I feel has to come out. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I, I did a launch event on, on Zoom the other night and I, people we were, got to talk about this and I was like, look, storytelling is how you get people to remember things. Even in my business life, yeah. my job was to tell a story that people who work for me could say, oh, I get it and live that way. So one way or another, I'll be storytelling. It's just a question of whether I'm writing it, <laughs> speaking it or living it, who knows? That's great. Well, listen, uh, I'm really happy that we had this chance to talk. Um, the book is out now. Yeah. Everywhere. Well, so here's the deal. The book is out. The book is done. It's sitting at the printer waiting for the supply chain to deliver paper. Uh, we're doing that. We're doing the. We're doing the worldwide catastrophe. 
it's, you know, and unfortunately my, my evil villain Ford Wilkes had nothing to do with this paper supply problem. Yeah. Um, I should have written about that in the book. So literally the book was supposed to launch uh, yesterday. The book has been at the printer for, you know, forever. The Kindle version is ready to go. And we're, we're waiting for paper supply. But pre-orders are up. Oh yeah. You can, people can order it anywhere. Yeah. Because yeah. I think we've all sort of realized like the next six months with buying anything is going to be buy yeah, and wait. Prepared. I, what I told people on the launch event is, you know, my original idea was launch the book now and then be able to go back to people and say, buy for the holiday. My message to you now is buy for the holiday now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's everybody's message. Like literally I'm going around, like I need to get all of my stuff bought now or else they're going to get it in April. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so yeah, it's absolutely people can pre-order it. It's available. Uh, the website is wilkesinsurrection.com. There's a bunch of material there, backgrounds on the characters. There's playlists for each of the characters. Um, you so, built the uh, whole world. You built the yeah, whole it world. Is a, it, hey, it's a, it's a, I just, there's, it's a metaverse thing for gaming, yeah, yeah. right? There's, a, <laughs> there's this little, little mini metaverse there around the Wilkes insurrection. But that's why I feel like it's so interesting that people that come to writing from more cinematic places, because that right. world exists as, Absolutely. I mean, the story you've told, yeah, maybe you didn't know that world as you were, did it, but like in your head, that world was existing and you were just finding it along the way. And then so so last thing, Brett. So the best piece of marketing material we've done for the Wilkes Insurrection is a two minute and eight uh, twenty second video trailer. Yeah. Oh yeah. Of course. And you watch that and you go, oh. And you know, so this idea of video, music, writing, kind of, and gaming, kind of mixing together, super powerful. And I mean, that's that's your gig, man. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Awesome. This is great. And uh, I can't wait to pick up the book. Thrillers have become weirdly one of my favorite genres in the pandemic. Like they are a, a great escapism. Well, w let me know when uh, when you post and we'll, uh, we'll follow up from there. 100%. All right. Have a great day. Thanks. Cheers. Well, there you have it. That was my interview with Robbie Bach. The Wilkes Insurrection is out right now. Uh, you got a little taste of what my life was like 22 years ago. I don't know if you give a shit about that, but now that is in your head. Um, he's great. I love people that love to talk, obviously. Um, and so it was fun to have him on the show. While we're at it here, couple reminders. If you like what you heard today on the program, I ask you to do two things at the top of the show. First, tell your friends about us. The people that are looking for a new podcast, people that are into books, like send them over here, let them, let them find us. Uh, I think they'll be interested and leave us a review either through Apple podcasts or over at the Facebook page at the writer's jam. Don't forget to check out all the other programs on the solid listen podcast network, including the flagship mother. May I sleep with podcast with host and our solid listen podcast, queen Molly McLear. She and Nicole are building this network up. Uh, and I couldn't be happier and prouder to be part of this group. Uh, we got these videos coming out every Monday and Friday on the Solid Listen Network YouTube channel. You can also catch them at the Writer's Jam, or you can catch the audio version wherever you listen to the Downtown Writer's Jam. The Jam comes out every Wednesday. The only way to make sure you don't miss what we're doing, get your ass subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at the Writer's Jam. Until the next time, I will see you around the internet. Don't forget to believe.
Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.